What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everyone and welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by Dr. Austin Baraki, and we're talking programming. This podcast episode serves as a follow-up to our previous three uh, dedicated episodes on programming, which I've linked in the description below. I would recommend checking those out before you listen to this podcast episode, uh, particularly if you're not otherwise familiar with our content and our musings on programming. We're going to discuss kind of the changes we've been making in our own programming and in our clients' programming to get better results and more consistent training over time, i.e. fewer deloads and being able to progress week to week or some other time interval. We'll also discuss some of the latest research on velocity-based training and training proximity to failure. So for all that and more, stay tuned. Let's start off with Dr. Baraki. Austin, what's going on, man? How's your training been going? Uh, It's been going okay the past few months. I mean, since I'd say around like COVID chaos time onset, um, there were a few kind of setbacks that happened around then with some recurrence of uh, prior tendinopathy symptoms that is very common, like once people develop a tendinopathy for it to kind of wax and wane or to recur uh, uh, over time. So I had a recurrence of a couple things back then, but managed to work through those. Um, and then, but deadlift training uh, seemed to, to cruise along pretty well and put together two pretty successful training cycles. Um, the first one uh, ended up with a PR set of five deadlifts at uh, 606 pounds or 275 kilos. And then the second cycle ended up with a deadlift that most recently happened at the Virginia seminar where I pulled 720 pounds or I think it's like 326 kilos or something like that. I don't know. Um, so that's kind of uh, how things have been going. And then I've just been managing some of the some of the other niggles that tend to come up uh, in the course of routine training alongside uh, work and life stress and all the other standard things that everybody deals with. Yeah. I mean, you haven't really been doing a lot of bench work uh, just in the last few years, because that's really where the, you know, the major tendinopathy yeah. that you've been dealing with. So most, most of your training has been squat and deadlift just, yeah. uh, mainly because no one, no one's paying you to be a power lifter. And, uh, the idea of really, you know, fixing the elbow quote unquote to, so that you can bench and go to a meet, uh, not highly motivated to do it. I know that's, you know, people are listening in the audience. They're like, oh my gosh, if I was as strong as you, that's exactly, I would do exactly that. And you're like, yeah, but if I really wanted to go to a meet, I would just, you know, I could bench 365 any day of the week or 363, whatever it is in kilos <laughs> and put up a total. And I know, again, that sounds 
I understand how it sounds. It's not great, but that's the, that's being real. And, and we're real here at Barbell Medicine. That's, that's what's up. Yeah. I think it's more of like we've talked about before, shifting your, your goals, whether it's a process oriented thing or an outcome oriented thing or an, or an absolute performance oriented goal. And those shift and, and change place over time. Comp- platform competition, I don't really care about uh, kind of at all right now. I'm, I'm primarily interested in just the training process and, and enjoying that, particularly as it serves to keep me sane and, and balance out kind of the rest of my life as a, a, a kind of an element of consistency, regardless of anything else that's going on. So yeah, it's like an, it's an enjoyable process and experience and, and, and all of that. And so the actual like, will I PR my total is not the motivating factor and therefore not really what influences your programming decisions. Yeah. 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 There there are definitely some, um, you know, when things start going well, it's kind of interesting, like my interest and motivation and and the goals shift. Like if something starts going particularly well, like when the deadlift started going pretty well, it's like, Oh, I seem to be putting together something uh, pretty nice here. And then, you know, about maybe a a halfway through, I was like, Oh, I wonder if I could, you know, aim towards like a 720 deadlift or something. So that was actually like a number that I had in mind for, uh, I don't know, many weeks leading up to that pull. And that's kind of what I had in mind uh, going into that day. So it all kind of came together. As we've said before, you know, performance, absolute performance is a pretty complex uh, uh, thing in terms of, you know, everything needs to actually go right on the one day at the at the specific time when it's supposed to happen. And, and there's tons of variables that go into that. And so it's it's not necessarily worth getting overly attached to that particular outcome, unless there's some very important reason for it. Like you're a, you know, a national world level athlete where stuff really quote unquote matters for you. Um, but you know, for, for people who are training, I think it's better to learn to enjoy the process and, and, uh, and work through it that way than to get overly attached to a specific outcome, specific number at a particular time. Yeah. Especially when, you know, the majority of your training is just that it's training. It's basically putting the work in to, so that one day you may realize all of the fitness adaptations that you've been building over time, uh, you know, and, and your performance is higher. I mean, that that's the idea. So like, if I had to like put a percentage on this somewhere on the neighborhood of like 80 to 90 plus percent of all of your workouts should literally just be punching the clock. You go, you go in, you do the work, you hit the, you know, the RPs, you do all the volume and, and, and all the work. And then, you know, you, you go back and eat, sleep, and you do it again the next day. Only a certain few workouts where you're really feeling it. You're like, oh, <laughs> I, I might have a PR today, Yeah, you know, and, and, and then, and that, and if you can realize that PR or it's at, you know, at a meet, if, if, if you do that, um, you know that that's a different deal. You're not just punching the clock. You're, you're get to kind of, again, fulfill uh, what you've been working for this whole time. But most of the workouts should just be, you know, punching the clock. That's the way I like to think about it anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think we've seen the downsides of when people turn the workout itself into a performance or they place a performance kind of level uh, uh, of importance upon the particular workout. We tend to see more downsides than upsides to that. I think both when it comes to like their psychological approach to training, their training enjoyment, 
like if things aren't where they want them to be on a particular day, risk of injury um, uh, as, as well when when they place excessive importance on every workout serially, you know, that, that uh, you know, every single workout in a row needs to be a PR effort of, of some sort. Um, I think that uh, we'll definitely get into some of this discussion when we talk about some of these tweaks that we've been thinking about. But um, yep. again, just coming back to the process versus like absolute performance at all times, not being necessarily the, the main focus. Yep. If every workout matters, no workout matters. <laughs> think about that. Okay. So we're going to talk about these programming tweaks and just a like, you know, 10,000 foot view of programming. The idea is that we're trying to apply the correct amount, so dose, and the correct formulation, so the pieces uh, of stimulus to drive the desired fitness adaptations. That's kind of the the 10,000 foot view. Now, the stimulus is not the same, and we don't like to use that word interchangeably with stress. Um, I feel like stress is a more complex term. It has different meaning um, because you could apply the same stimulus to different people and get different sort of stress responses to those things based on their previous training, based on their genetics, based on their environment, based on their mood, based on all the things that make them them, making them unique. So stimulus and stress are not the same term. Uh, uh, something I've been playing with is is thinking about stimulus as like the external load, right? So like sets, reps, rest periods, exercise selection, all the things on paper that make up your program. Um, and then that gets filtered through the individual, right? And again, all the things that make them, them. And on the other end, you get stress, which you can measure via a different, in different ways. Now, I don't think that just RPE, which is rating of exertion, right? Or heart rate, you, these things, uh, effectively gauge the internal load. I don't think either one of them, for example, in isolation tells you the stress, of a particular stimulus, but I think you could use multiple internal load metrics like heart rate, like uh, RPE, like rating of fatigue after a session to sort of ascribe a number or a value or, or something to stress. In any case, the whole idea is that stress and stimulus are not the same thing, but you generate, you do generate stress from the stimulus. And then the stress is what causes both the fitness adaptations and the fatigue. So the things we can actually modify all occur before the stress. You can modify the stimulus or you can modify the environment, your mood, your you know expectations, all these other sort of things. And then this fully ties into this notion of a stress index. The guys at RTS have been uh, talking about this stress index for a while. It's effectively a, a table they came up with to try to compare different repetition and RPE efforts to each other. So like comparing a single at eight to a set of 10 at eight, which one is actually more stressful? And so off the top of your head, you'd say, well, probably the 10 at eight. It's more reps, right? It's the same exertion level, but there's more reps for the set of 10. And so, you know, there's more glycogen depletion and lactate accumulation and, you know, uh, all this other sort of stuff. And I would agree with that. I would agree that the peripheral fatigue is substantially higher at a set of 10 at eight than a single at eight. However, I think that the central fatigue is likely higher from a single at eight than a set of 10 at eight. You know, you got to work up to something that's real, real heavy. And, you know, you may get a little nervous, a little anxiety about it, particularly if it's on a lift that matters to you, right? Like squat, bench, or deadlift if you're a power lifter. And so I don't know what the overall sort of fatigue comparison between the two 
if, if it's substantially different. And I think that likely matters more uh, on an individual basis than maybe people are giving it credit for. Like if you got a person who's never done sets of 10, they're just, you know, powerlifting, old school powerlifting through and through, <laughs> and you make them do 10s, that's going to be substantially more fatiguing than it should be for them. They're just not used to it, right? S- similarly, you have somebody who's only done sets of 10 and now you got to make them do a single. I don't know that it, that's going to be that fatiguing for them. They, they don't actually have, you know, these expectations. They don't have this sort of, uh, you know, training history and, and all this other sort of stuff surrounding like the importance of the single. It's just, all right, it's a single. It's just, you know, nine less reps, whatever. <laughs> so so, so I, th- I think it matters. And so I think when we're trying to compare like effort and RPE uh, across, you know, different range, rep ranges, I don't know that you can, that it's, it's that cut and dry. Um, rather, I think that, that we should cautiously sort of try to predict the fatigue, uh, based on people's training history, their, you know, own personal sort of, uh, mental approach towards training, what their previous, uh, performances have been, previous experiences have been, all that other sort of stuff. And then maybe you can predict that a little bit. Uh, but, but overall the, the same sort of idea still applies. We're, we're trying to make sure that we're not imparting an excess amount of fatigue for the potential stimulus that we're we're getting if you're listening to this right now think back to your last week of training is it possible that you could have added one or two pounds to any or all sets that you did the the likely answer is i mean yeah probably it's just one or two pounds right provided you didn't actually go to full-on rpe 10 failure you know on most of your sets so you could have probably done a little more weight but why is it is it going to drive more fitness adaptations? Well, I think what really happens is that to the extent that your fitness adaptations increase, the concomitant fatigue increases out of proportion to that. And so you don't actually realize those fitness adaptations. They get masked by the added fatigue. And it's like, well, <laughs> you just robbed Peter to pay Paul. I don't know that that's a good trade-off. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would agree with that. And and. This- what you describe, I think, kind of gets into the meat of what I thought was probably worth discussing here, because um, I got a bunch of questions after that deadlift about kind of what changes I had made. And, and I think people probably got the impression that the changes were a whole lot more radical than they really were or, or yeah, expensive. Right. And, and I think that, um, you know, as far as like my main competition deadlift, quote unquote, training went, it was quite similar to what folks see out of like a lot of our regular training templates and things like that. So it wouldn't be unusual to work up to some top set, like what you were describing, a single, a double, a triple, somewhere in the RPE seven to eight range, and then to do uh, a a decent dose of of back off work in like the 70 to 75% range, give or take. Um, And and what I talked with you about a little bit when we were out there is that the, the other change that I had made was also along the lines of what you mentioned there, where my supplemental lift training, rather than uh, working more in like ramping sets at set RPE seven, eight, nine range, working up to something that was fairly hard for, for multiple reps and doing back offs, like not that far away from that. Um, I changed the setup there to actually look a bit more similar to what I used on the main deadlift day, just doing my variant deadlift in that, in that fashion. And, and the, to, for people who may be kind of getting lost in the weeds as far as what we're talking about here, ultimately what we would like to do, as Jordan said earlier, is uh, apply a stimulus to the person that gets the adaptation we want. 
And of course, if all that matters is like one training day, sure, I can give you literally whatever stimulus I want and it's going to be fine. If I want you to be training consistently over the course of weeks and months and years, um, then there are additional considerations that need to be uh, that need to come into play, particularly with respect to like sustainability of it. Um, and, and one of the big things that uh, has become more and more important, and we talk about this a lot in our pain and rehab content, like with, when we when you hear us say things like load management, where we're kind of managing overall training fatigue, we talk about that a lot as well. The idea is we want to get the best bang for our buck with the, the dose of stimulus and the formulation of stimulus we're, we're applying. So I want to give you a training program, an external load, like, like uh, you said earlier, that gets you a good stimulus, but ideally doesn't come with an enormous fatigue cost. And I think this is where there are probably some debates in the programming world, uh, in the training world, and that can even be further kind of broken down between like strength oriented camps and hypertrophy oriented camps between people who are promoting very high intensity training closer to failure um, and then lower intensity or training further away from failure. Uh, uh, there's active discussions kind of on this. And so the training that I was doing didn't change radically, but there were there have been some conversations that had emerged in the past few months. And, and I chatted and, and some of the folks who follow us may be familiar with the the, uh, the data-driven strength guys, and they wrote this article called Rethinking Proximity to Failure for Strength Gains and uh, chatted with them a little bit about it. And one of the, it was just what I found interesting about it was that it was a very striking contrast to the discussion that had been going on a few months earlier from like Chris Beardsley and his like effective reps idea, right? So there's this, on one hand, this idea that only the last few reps in a given set are like particularly useful. Uh, quote, the only rep you care about is number five, right? Um, and and I think lots of people intuitively kind of bought into that idea that, you know, grinding your heart out to get that last rep so that you can call it a successful set of five, that last rep is like the most useful one when it comes to generating the adaptations you want. And the conversation that followed more recently had kind of flipped that discussion on its head as far as saying like, well, actually, maybe the earlier reps in the set up front, the ones where the bar speed is higher, meaning that you are producing more force, um, might be more useful because high force is what we care about. And, and part of a mechanistic explanation for how bar speed declines over the course of a set due to fatigue is that your force output is going down. So maybe we care more when it comes to strength gains about producing high amounts of force. And, you know, I think those are uh, interesting kind of Sort, sort of competing theories, although I recognize that I think Beardsley stuff tends to focus a bit more on hypertrophy when he's talking about that. But I think that started to lead towards some more of the experimentation that I was doing and, and thinking back as far as like my own training and some of my trainees where it's like, you know, we are pushing, we, we might push uh, uh, things closer to RPE9 a little bit more frequently. And then I might notice aches and pains accumulate. I might notice a more frequent need for deload weeks or back off weeks or low stress weeks or whatever you want to call it. And maybe we can experiment in a way, basically experiment with the formulation of training, um, not necessarily so much the dose, but maybe the, the formulation, at least at first, to get a better stimulus per unit dose of fatigue that is generated, even though we right. can't necessarily measure fatigue in terms of units, but getting a better trade-off between the stimulus and the fatigue cost that uh, a session is generating. If we play with the idea that, you know, maybe those last reps, maybe grinding uh, isn't necessarily as useful for generating strength adaptations as, uh, um, as may have previously been thought, 
Um, as long as, you know, going back to what I mentioned as far as what's required for a strength adaptation on the neurological side, like needing some degree of exposure to heavy weights, right, which are always a, a kind of a, a prominent feature of our strength oriented uh, programs in that they require like heavy singles or doubles or triples. Um, the question is just how much of our work needs to be in that kind of high fatigue range, that like very, very slow bar speed range. And, and definitely, um, you know, what I'm thinking is that we can probably get further away from failure on average and get reasonable strength adaptations. Um, whether that's the case all the time, uh, probably not. Whether that's the case for all people, definitely not. Um, but that's just kind of the overview of what, what you know, I think we've been experimenting with is, is maybe people might be used to RPE eights and nines in the programming, maybe experimenting with pulling that average down a point or two so that it's more, you know, uh, uh, six or seven, maybe even fives uh, uh, RPE at, at, at some times. Yeah. The idea is that you, you wouldn't want the fatigue out of proportion to the potential stimulus. Uh, so effectively, you could have three separate scenarios here that's probably illustrative here. Uh, so uh, in scenario one, you do five sets of four reps at 80% or above. So a four rep max is somewhere around 86, 87-ish percent of a 1RM. So let's say you do it at 82%. So that's uh, five relatively hard sets of four RP eight and above for sure. Um, these sets are all, you know, hallmarked by a lot of velocity loss towards the end of the set. Uh, it also generate, which is indicative of generating a substantial amount of fatigue. Um, the, you do however, have some specificity to like a one RM velocity effectively things, you know, get slow when they get real, real heavy. So, you know, there's maybe some, uh, benefit to having that uh, from the specificity standpoint, but you've generated a lot of fatigue, again, as indicated by that velocity loss. You compare that to doing five sets of four at, say, 70%, where there's little velocity loss, some maybe, but little, uh, which is indicative of generating substantially less fatigue. Uh, and it still has some specificity to the 1RM velocity and, and, and other characteristics, because it's still heavy. I mean, 70% is still in the high intensity range. It's just not the highest intensity. Yeah. It's and particularly just, when you move it quickly and you're, you know, demanding high levels of force output on correct. You know, all of those reps. Correct. And then you compare that to the final thing, kind of on the other end, 10 sets of two at 70%, still 20 reps. You get almost no velocity loss. You get little, you know, if any fatigue generated, uh, and you get, you know, very, very minimal specificity to the one RM velocity. So it's kind of like three different way, three different, you know, ways to, to train, um, in, in that, in that range. And so what I think we've both kind of centered or come back around to is that somewhere towards the lower to middle portion of this, like effective intensity range is where we trying to push more people towards because we think that they can get the same amount of stimulus, you know, for the most part, without generating any unnecessary fatigue, which means they can train more, uh, not only just do more volume, right, potentially increasing the stimulus signal, but instead of taking a deload week every four weeks or five weeks, maybe it's every six or seven weeks or longer. So, so in a year, you end up training a bunch more. Uh, at least as far as productive, you know, uh, 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 you know, fitness adaptation oriented sort of training rather than just taking a deload. And, and I will say that, you know, w 
when people think about why do you need a deload, it's it's usually one of two two reasons. Reason one is like a psychological need, like, yo, I'm burnt out, I I need a break, right? And so you you take a deload, or you're like, hey, I'm real real sore, or I've got this overuse sort of injury thing brewing, and, and you, you have to take a deload uh, for that. And so those are really the two reasons why you would take a deload. Um, if you don't have to do that as often, you can get more consecutive sort of productive training sessions under your belt for each training cycle, which would overall be the the goal. So I, I think the where, where people go astray here is they think, well, if it's heavier, it's probably better. And I don't think that's necessarily the assumption that I, or an assumption that I would agree with. I think if it's heavier, I know that it's heavier, but <laughs> I also think it's probably costing you a little bit more fatigue. And so um, if I had to expand this again to a 10,000 foot view, I think that in general, most of the training that people should be doing from a strength um, and hypertrophy sort of standpoint um, should probably be in that sort of 60 to 80% range. Doesn't mean you never go above that. It just means that the majority of your training is probably in that 60 to 80% range. And I think that we can get you know, similar sort of fitness adaptations if we are in the middle of that range and we don't always push it all the way up to 80% or above above that range, certainly, because um, I think you can just generate uh, a bunch of extra fatigue without necessarily much more stimulus, which is kind of the point here. It's like you, you don't always just need to add the five pounds or add the 10 pounds because it might just be more fatiguing, not necessarily causing more of a benefit, which is really what you want. You want the benefit. You don't want the, the additional fatigue. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of, we said this, I know we said this, in the, one of the original programming yeah. podcasts. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say is I think if people go back to that, they'll hear us talk about the similar kind of what we view as a useful intensity range. Um, I'd say, yeah, putting most of the training in that 60 to 80, if I had to focus it even more, maybe 65 to 75 <laughs> range. Um, I think that where, uh, and then the periodic exposures to the heavier loads, like when people see a single at eight or a single at seven or something like that, um, that'll take you up closer to like a 90% uh, effort, give or take, but it's, you know, still not a maximal effort and it's one rep and, and it's not costing you a ton of fatigue. Whereas if you're doing routinely like circa five RM efforts, you're smack in the middle of this 80, 85% range, give or take, and, uh, getting close to failure, getting, uh, a, a lot more, uh, fatigue out of it. Um, and, uh, going closer to failure, generating more, you know, muscle damage and, and things like that, that may ultimately limit your ability to tolerate higher doses of training that could also benefit you in terms of overall adaptations. Um, yeah. there, there are also a few other aspects of this that I've found interesting. I mean, I think, uh, even a year or two ago, we had chatted about some of the, you mentioned the, the, the velocity loss, um, and bar speed, um, kind of as a, as a metric and, and, uh, it's something that has been researched. Actually, there's actually a, quite a, large and growing body of research on bar speed uh, um, in resistance training. And in particular, uh, researchers are looking at training outcomes when they take groups of trainees and they uh, separate them into two different training programs. One, where they do a particular number of sets, but they take their sets until the bar speed slows down more. Um, and they compare that to another group that does maybe the same number of sets, but they stop their sets earlier, um, you know, after a certain amount of bar speed loss that is not as, that is not as great. And uh, some of the uh, studies that have been discussed quite a bit on these have been 
have some interesting findings in that uh, some of these athletes are getting better strength adaptations um, on the lower velocity loss uh, uh, programs, even though ultimately they do fewer total reps. Um, they're doing you know the same number of sets, but fewer total reps and uh, maintaining higher bar speeds, indicative of higher force production uh, versus taking things further, closer to failure, where your force is really dropping off and you're approaching failure and getting super beat up. Um, then that's a situation where they did additional reps, but it didn't seem to ultimately pay off in terms of their strength adaptations. Yeah. Um, and, and just to be clear again, that there is some distinction to be made in these conversations between strength uh, uh, training uh, or training that is primarily oriented towards strength and performance goals, uh, training that is primarily oriented towards hypertrophy oriented goals without regard to strength uh, uh, performance. And finally, like health related training where most of this does not matter. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, the way I square that circle, cause, cause you know, uh, when you initially hear that, you're like, wait, wait. So the lower volume groups, we're doing better. Well, uh, well, I just need to cut volume then. And it's like, well, 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 what, what it really is suggesting these findings are really suggesting is that, um, instead of maybe the last few reps or last rep being the quote unquote effective reps, maybe the first few reps are the more effective reps. And then the reps where it gets real grindy and there's a lot of fatigue are, would be quote unquote junk reps. You know, I, I don't love that term, but, but the idea is that they're actually causing fatigue out of proportion to the stimulus. And so, yeah, you did more, but at what cost? Um, and so with the squeeze as you yeah, would say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'd rather have you do in a perfect world. I'd rather have you do more sets without the velocity loss as much velocity loss. So you could still get that robust stimulus um, you know, maybe even more robust potentially, but not necessarily at the cost of the extra fatigue. Um, and it's interesting because effectively what this is saying in a nutshell is that staying further away from failure, you know, is at least one strategy to potentially gaining more strength. And you, you see that also in hypertrophy studies. So in fact, you know, when you look at the totality of the data with respect to tr training proximity to failure in uh, hypertrophy studies, you effectively see that there is a wide variety of inter-individual responses to hypertrophy training at baseline. And that people who train to failure don't necessarily gain more muscle mass than those who train relatively far away from failure. We're talking about four reps, five reps, sometimes even more uh, reps left in reserve, so relatively far away from failure. Um, the exceptions to this would be with uh, maybe new trainees if you restrict that to just isolation work. So you could make a case potentially for novice or beginner lifters who are really interested in, you know, biceps development to maybe take their sets of curls to failure. But also think about the, the, the general fatigue <laughs> that you would generate from taking a set of curls to failure compared to a set of squats to failure. It's just a different beast. And so, again, the way I squared that circle is that, yeah, if you want to go to failure on these, you know, isolation exercises sometimes, like, knock yourself out. I, I don't think that that matters, really. Yeah. Um, uh, but if we're talking about training proximity to failure on compound lifts, um, where there's a lot more muscle mass involved and there's a lot more uh, potential central fatigue, if there's two main umbrellas of fatigue, central being, you know, central nervous system based and then peripheral being stuff that happens at the level of the muscle. Um, yeah, I, I, again, as, as you stole my thunder already, I don't know that the juice is worth the squeeze. 
Um, so yeah, in practice, uh, what this has looked like uh, for me and the other trainees that, uh, that I coach, um, I have been using less one at eights than I previously have, um, particularly for folks who I've been coaching for a while. They've probably noticed that more two at sevens, three at sevens, stuff like that. The idea is we're using these sort of sets that are, you know, relatively low rep, uh, and they're still kind of heavy, you know, but, but not maximally heavy. And it kind of gives them a barometer for what their performance is like that day. And then they can use, we, we can use a percentage to do back offsets, um, and the percentage tends to be much lower than it would be if I just gave them an RPE. So the example would be a set of three at seven and then, uh, you know, five sets of five at 70% versus do a set of three at eight and then do uh, five at seven or five at eight for five backoffs. It's just, it ends up being a, like substantially less weight, um, but still not you know, light or low intensity because you're still in that that sort of effective intensity range, uh, and it, it it overall it seems to uh, basically fit this optimization problem we have between <laughs> generating enough stimulus without a bunch of extra fatigue. Uh, I've been using that on both the competition lifts and then also the supplemental lifts. Um, another way that I do this is have people work up to like a top set, like set of eight at nine. Um, which again is somewhat close to failure, but it's also a set of eight. So it's not like maximally, you know, heavy in the traditional sense, like, oh, a set of five at nine or four at nine, and then do three sets of five with that same load, which would then be, you know, sets of five at six or seven, which is kind of the the point there. Um, so you get to kind of, again, gauge your, we're just trying to gauge, get your performance level on a particular exercise kind of, uh, narrowed down on a given day so that way we can kind of figure out how much weight you should be using for your, uh, for most of your working sets. Um, so that's, that's a couple different strategies that I've been using and, uh, we've been having some pretty good success, uh, with, with that, or at least I have as far as being able to extend people's training cycles for longer, instead of it being normally four to five weeks, I've been noticing they've been trending towards longer, which, uh, makes me happy because then people are building momentum and having longer, more productive training cycles than needing a, a deload or requesting a deload, um, you know, every few weeks. But I fully expect this not to work for everyone. I fully expect, you know, there's to be this, you know, variation in, in response. Um, but in saying that, I don't know that I've ever like been programming for somebody and said, you know what this person needs? Higher intensity. They need a higher average intensity. It really hasn't been something that I've had to I've had to do, and, and I'm not exactly sure why that is, but not something that I can remember doing. And certainly in recent history, but you know, even when I go back, I'm, I, I I haven't really come to the conclusion like, oh, the reason this person isn't progressing is because there's just not enough weight on the bar, and we got to jack up the intensity. Seems seems like something I, I haven't uh, really had to do. Austin, have you uh, have you noticed something similar? I think that uh, if people go back to those original podcast, we probably talked about the concept of uh, polarized training and as something that, uh, you know, we were more familiar with from the kind of aerobic or endurance world. And that was certainly, you know, the model of training that I was exposed to as a swimmer. You know, we were swimming routinely, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 yards a week or something like that. And the overwhelming majority of that yardage was not super high intensity. 
there would be, you know, small periodic exposures to like race pace, um, kind of things or, or doing all out sprints, but that was a very small, uh, uh, kind of amount of training compared to everything else. And then the rest was generally very, uh, uh sub maximal or sub threshold as they would say in that, in that world. Um, and, and we talked about that as a concept in the original programming podcast, and that is kind of reflected in, in how a lot of the competition lift programming has, has looked in a lot of the, the templates and a lot of programming we've used where, as we said, a lot of the training volume is like in the 65 to 75% range. And then you get exposures to singles at eight and, and things like that. I think that what we're, uh, kind of experimenting with now is just expanding that to more fully permeate some of the rest of the programming as well. Whereas, you know, previously some of the, we would say, well, we're going to do these supplemental lifts that, um, you know, are inherently limiting in some way, like a pause deadlift or a deficit deadlift or a tempo squat or something. And the weight on the bar is going to be, uh, the absolute weight on the bar is going to be lower. So we can push that to higher RPEs and, you know, it'll be uh, still a useful stimulus. And, and I definitely don't disagree that it was a useful stimulus since, you know, we, we both trained that way for, for a while. But the question that, uh, you know, came to mind, you know, earlier this spring when I started thinking about this stuff some more was like, just, you know, is there a way to make, again, this stimulus and fatigue trade off even better? And what if we just use the same kind of polarization, uh, polarized training model and use it on the supplemental lifts as well? And so that's kind of how this has gone. Um, and, uh, and, and I also think it's important if we're going to talk about intensity, if you're going to talk about increasing intensity or decreasing intensity, to be very clear about, you know, whether we're talking about weight on the bar, percent of one RM, or kind of the, the more relative as far as RPE goes. And so, you know, I would say that, yeah, it's not super common that I have trainees in whom I say, oh yeah, we need to crank up their uh, percent of one RM exposure to, to be hitting, you know, more, many more frequent sets at like 85% in a given training week. That's not something that I uh, expose lots of people to. Um, and, and also I would say that there are not tons of people in whom I, I say, oh, this person needs way more RPE nine efforts in their training. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There, I don't think it's happened. And, and, and I think that, you know, there are certainly some people, you know, who we kind of watch, we might watch their sets and as they're kind of getting used to auto regulation and we see their bar speed is like, light speed and they're, and they're telling us that it's, you know, a, a very hard effort. Those people, I might, you know, play some mind games and, and, uh, have pushed their RPE targets up. Not because I think that, um, they need to take their sets, you know, to very close to failure within a rep of failure, but I'm trying to get things kind of more calibrated or better calibrated as they learn the skill of, uh, of auto regulation over time. Uh, but I definitely have seen in, 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 in individuals who, uh, you know, maybe in, in the earlier days when, as we were approaching meets, we might have them doing singles on a given lift, like, you know, three or four times a week or some heavier back offsets, you know, multiple times a week. And, and maybe performance wasn't exactly where we wanted it to be, or some aches and pains might develop at an inopportune time or something like that. Um, so yeah, that's not something that I'm routinely in the habit of cranking up, uh, uh, intensity on people. Um, unless, you know, I have some real clear indicator that they're just like, under training, not just not just not uh, not meeting the actual prescription, in which case we have a conversation about that. Um, so so I think that applying the this polarized model um, is, is, is uh, what we're just kind of expanding that a bit and then emphasizing a bit more um, or, or I suppose paying a bit more attention to the fatigue trade offs that we're getting per set and trying to find where the person falls on this curve. 
Um, and, and that's what you said is that this is certainly not going to work for everybody, even within a person, uh, um, it, you know, a given setup is not going to work, uh, forever for them either. And so this stuff, just as it does with our own training at this point, people like you guys are, you know, a decade plus into your training careers and you're still tweaking all this kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's going to be that way forever. Um, you know, you become a different organism and you need a different st- kind of stimulus to, to, uh, keep, keep going. So I would expect lots of variation between individuals within individuals. Um, uh, but the overall concept of trying to get a good stimulus for the amount of fatigue you generate, I think is a good one for, for people to take away and, and maybe reconsidering how close do I really need to go to failure to get something out of this session? Does something need to absolutely wreck me quote unquote for it to be useful? And, and I think we would both agree that you probably don't <laughs> get, get wrecked. Yeah. I mean, it's far more common for us to tell people like, eh, I'd probably back down the weight to a, and, and maybe go to a lower RP than it is to do the opposite. Um, and yeah, I'm also glad that you uh, reminded me about the nomenclature for polarized training. This was a popularized by Joel Friel in the cycling world. Um, and Mike and I had been talking about this back in, I think it was 2013. I mean, in 2014 uh, or uh, 15, I was doing a single at eight and then taking 26% off the bar. Uh, so I was doing my work sets at like 65% on squats and deadlifts. Yeah. Like I remember I was, I would do like a single, I think the heaviest it ever went, I I did a single at 585 and then I took 26% off and I was doing my, uh, I did nine triples at, you know, 455 or four, four, something like that. And I was like, and all the triples were like super speedy. And I'm like, I mean, this is, this feels awesome because I feel great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, the other thing that I played with at a similar time was doing a single at eight. And then I did mile reps for my actual volume work. The idea was like, you know, again, just trying to control the fatigue. Uh, but so in any case, I did, I think I ended up doing like 330 on squat for like almost 30 reps in a single set, which yeah. again, that was yeah less fun than it may sound like. The only, the only other thing before we enter the lightning round that I've actually been playing around with, uh, with again, my lifters and then also myself i've been benching first on day four which i know i know what you're thinking whoa big changes <laughs> but but <laughs> but the thing was like so for me um obviously bench press performance uh and development is important to me i'd really like at some point to even come close to benching 500 uh at 440 i've been like kind of dancing around PRing for a while now. And I, I just, I really want to push it. And so the idea is if I can do it fresh, I feel like I get a little bit, you know, more zing in my training. Um, it's less affected than by squatting beforehand. So I've been putting comp bench first on day four rather than after squats on day one, um, or even after squats on day three. And, and I, I didn't want to bench, do my comp bench, my most important bench by definition. Um, after deadlifts or before deadlifts on day two, my comp deadlifts. So I did it before my supplemental deadlifts. It's just been something I've been playing with just to like maybe have a little bit more energy to like devote towards not only the, uh, the performance, but also all the back off work just to try to, you know, make sure all my pauses were good, not get tired, not like, you know, mail it in. And, uh, you know, that, that happens, especially if you got you know, a lot, a long training session. So other than that, We've been doing the same thing, which is good. All right. This is the lightning round. I know how you like this stuff, so <laughs> we're going to do it. All right. James Nugent, no relation to Ted, 
at what level of powerlifting does individualized coaching become necessary? Could an elite level lifter succeed simply by following templates? Uh, my answer to this is I'm not sure that individualized coaching is ever necessary. I think that some folks will benefit from having a person guiding their programming, uh, helping them with their mindset, helping them with attempt selection and, and, you know, other sort of technical aspects of powerlifting performance. Uh, some people will, will do much, much better than that with that than others. But in order to like be the best of the best, I think there's a certain level of not only genetic stock and environmental, you know, sort of uh, factors and motivational factors that again, probably have some uh, genetic underpinning that need to be in place. And those folks, you know, there, there's some folks who are just self-coached and and they do very, very well. So it would be hard for me to say everybody, you know, once they hit a class one total or class two total needs a coach. Um, I just think that if you're looking for somebody to steepen that learning curve for you, so you learn a lot more <laughs> and get a lot and get a lot further, a lot faster, uh, then having a good coach who not only is just telling you like what to do rep sets exercise wise, but also teaching you, that's probably beneficial. Um, but if, you know, you're on a template and you're crushing it, I don't know that you need somebody to give you a gold star either. Um, so yeah, no hard like line that I can think of. We're like, yep, you need a coach here. Uh, I think that everybody's going to be different. Uh, and then, you know, if you need somebody to put in attempts or load your bar at a powerlifting meet, you know, at nationals or something like that, because you made it that far on your own, like, okay. And you want to call them a coach or list them as your coach, like that's fine. But I, I don't know that, you know, everybody's going to need somebody to, to help them out. Uh, anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, I agree. I don't think every, anybody necessarily needs one at a particular time. You can get a coach if you want one. Um, I mean, world-class people by definition are freaks and, and freaks are going to be freaks <laughs> regardless of, of what kind of programming is thrown at them. As far as how far a given program is going to take them, obviously, you know, you can't necessarily predict that or much of anything else in advance. Um, but there's definitely more to becoming a elite level performer than just sets and reps on a, on a piece of paper. And for those other things, I think it can definitely be useful to have a coach as far as the things they can help with are going to depend on where the individual's needs are. You know, whether let's say you're a total freak strength athlete, but you know, you've never competed in a high stakes environment, you, you know, you crack under pressure or something, maybe you need some mental skills training, maybe you need some other aspect of your, of your game improved and, and a coach can help identify and, and work on those with the, with the person. Um, but yeah, there's not a, any point where I would say, yeah, you definitely, you know, absolutely have to have coaching. Um, yeah. Yep. I like it. Uh, okay. Chris Hornick asks why overload training? I, to be clear, I don't know that you need to do overload training full stop. Um, that being said, overload training to me means using things like weight releasers or heavy eccentrics or chains or bands, or slingshot, um, or potentially partial range of motion stuff. Um, as far as like from a musculoskeletal standpoint and also like neurological standpoint, you could make the argument that heavy ex eccentric work uh, you know, since you can handle more weight in the eccentric than you can in the concentric, uh, when the muscle is lengthening compared to when the muscle is shortening, you're, you're just stronger on an eccentric contraction than you are in a concentric contraction that some of the physical adaptations that occur at the level of the muscle, as far as like you build more costumiers, uh, you some of the, the tissue specific changes, like as far as stiffness, uh, goes, that stuff may improve with that style of training. Um, but 
I don't know that you need to have it. I know that I prefer it uh, in some like in some areas sometimes during the training cycle because I think people tend to respond relatively well to it. But I think you could go your whole life, your whole powerlifting career without doing a bunch of overload work. And if you responded to that stuff that wasn't overload work, that would be you know not necessarily surprising to me either. I I think that you know there are going to be people who thrive with overload work involved and there are other people who who don't. Um, so for example, for me. I like overload work on my, on my deadlift does nothing like deadlift against bands, deadlift against chains. It, it's just more weight. And, and in some cases it may just be more fatiguing rather than applying any additional stimulus. Um, uh, the bench press for me is much, much different. I love slingshot bench. I love board press. I love bench with chains. I think that does a lot for my, my bench press and maybe to a little lesser extent on my squat, but on my deadlift historically has done nothing. So I don't do it on my deadlift. Now, uh, I get a lot of work, a lot of benefit out of increasing the range of motion on my deadlift. So deficit pulls, pause pulls seem to work pretty well for driving up my deadlift, but like deadlifting with chains, eh. I, I, to be fair, I've never tried doing weight releasers on a deadlift because I think have you, would, ever done, have you ever done reverse banded deadlifts? I, yeah, brute. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I did have a, I do have a set of weight releasers that I've used on squat and bench press, um, which I, and I do like them. I think the biggest issue for me using them regularly has to do with um, setting pinning, them yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. And then also like people look at you real, real strange. Yeah. And let me tell you the death wobble when you walk out, like I think the most I ever had was like six seventy five, and you're like, just don't die. Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, squat down, and then two hundred pounds comes off the bar, and you're like, uh, didn't die. That's good. <laughs> and you stand up. There's actually a video. I wish that you guys could see this. It, well, look, if you if you YouTube Mike to share weight releasers, I think he walks out in his garage by himself, like a thousand and something, with weight releasers on the bar. And then he takes a big breath, and you're like, "This is I see. This is where I see a man die." <laughs> he squats down, and like I get a couple hundred pounds of weight releasers comes off the bar, and then he stands right up, and I'm like, "You know what? I don't have that in me," and that's and that's why I'm average. That's that's where we're that's where we're at. Any anything else you want to add on uh, weight release or uh, overload work? Yeah, I personally don't use a ton of it in in my own training. I've had some trainees who um, more often, I feel like for psychological kind of issues with respect to like, you know, maybe they get some performance anxiety under particular loads. And I might do some stuff like that to uh, work on that, to get them used to handling certain weights. Um, and, and that's kind of, I feel like the main time I use it. Other, otherwise, it might be for some, for some variety and somebody who's interested in trying it or, or, you know, doing some different variations. For my own training, I don't really do much of it myself. Yeah. Yep. All right. What do you do with somebody who is constantly overshooting their RPE? Um, a couple things. So one might be to have a conversation about it, which will happen all the time. Uh, as far as interventions or changes I make to the programming, I might uh, either decrease the RPE targets. So like take a point off across the board, take two points off across the board, or I might get tighter with the way I'm prescribing uh, the loads to the range I want by turning it into more of a percentage-based thing, uh, typically based off of some benchmark metric. So if they tend to overshoot and all their one at, you know, eights turned into one at tens, then I might prescribe them a single at RPE six and then use that to, you know, uh, to, uh, um, base some percentage work off of so that I can force them into the particular range that I want them to be in. Those are probably yep. two, the two main ways I do it. 
Yeah, sometimes I just give up and I just program something at 10 or like, a, or like an AMRAP. So, uh, so I'll, it'll be like, oh, do a set of you know six at 10 because I know what the average intensity should be there. And then I'm like, all right, now you're going to take this amount of percent off the bar and do your backup work. I'm, I, you know, I'm effectively saying, all right, this one set is going to probably be too fatiguing compared to the amount of stimulus we can generate, but I'll accept that to get the rest of the yeah. workout because <laughs> you were because you were going to do it anyway yeah. uh or the amrap stuff i do like so it'll be like do a set of 70 percent your estimated one rm to amrap um and you know sometimes i'll write in there it should be like rp9 but if you go to failure that's fine too and then do back off work uh, at 60 something percent of there uh some, sometime like that so again they get to because they're they were going to go to failure anyway <laughs> it's not my preference but uh, yeah yeah, all the time. Sometimes it can be useful, uh, but yeah, not not too frequently or, or used too much. Okay. Uh, all right. George Hahn asks, do you believe a lower fatigue approach would be less effective for beginners or not advanced lifters due to them generally needing to gain more muscle compared to someone such as yourself? Uh, this was posted on my 675-pound pause deadlift video, which I just mentioned all of that as a humble brag. So. <laughs> uh i don't actually think that because i i I think unless we're restricting the conversation just to isolation work where i do think there may be a benefit for newer lifters going you know either closer to failure or to failure i think that the data is pretty equivocal on training to failure like the proximity to failure so i wouldn't expect somebody training to rp8 to have necessarily better results from strength or hypertrophy than if they were training to rp6 um if you like you know, extrapolated that out to like, yo, this, these sets were RP two compared to RP seven, maybe. But again, I think you have to, you have to like bracket the conversation in, we're still training in acceptable intensity ranges to get the desired fitness adaptations. And I just think that that desired intensity range is much, much larger than people think. They might think it's seventy to eighty-five percent, or seventy-five to eighty-five percent, and I think it's like sixty to eighty percent, or maybe even lower, depending on the amount of reps you're doing. Um, and it, it, I don't think it's much, much higher than eighty percent for the majority of, of your of your work. Even if I had somebody do a single on every exercise, right? They trained four days a week, three exercises per day, and they did a single on every single exercise, single at eight. That's still only twelve reps. And if they're doing, you know, close to a hundred reps per movement pattern, squat, bench, deadlift, that's literally less than, you know, that's 10% or so, or 12% of their total weekly reps, which makes up a fraction of their total training stimulus. So yeah, I don't think that necessary, as long as you're within that sort of workable intensity range, I don't think that getting closer to failure is necessarily better for newer lifters. Um, but there's an inter-individual variation there. So you know, some folks may do better towards the upper end. Some folks may do better towards the lower end. And there's got to be a bunch of people in between. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to add? Yeah, I think that if we're uh, also, if we're talking about strength performance adaptations, like if this person cares about absolute top end strength, then I think that there's definitely some some value in, in beginner or newer lifters, um, you know, learning what it feels like to get closer to uh, those those high levels of, of effort. Uh, required. However, the question, you know, is kind of more slanted towards like, 
you know, the overall training approach. Like I don't think that most or, or certainly not all of their training needs to be, um, you know, that hard, that high intensity. I think that we can get away with, you know, uh, uh, occasional exposures to that level of effort, um, you know, taking things maybe closer to a nine or, or, or even a 10 if, if you're earlier in your training career and you care about performance-based outcomes. But I definitely don't think that that extends to mean that like most or even definitely not all of your sets need to be uh, uh, to that level of exertion. Yep. All right. Kimbo K asks, let's say a lifter pretty early in his career decides to lift five times or six times a week, although he probably could still progress on three or four times a week, uh, simply because he has the time and the motivation to do it. Given that he accounts for overall training volume, workload, fatigue, and so on, is there any reason you'd recommend against upping the frequency too early? Uh, this is actually a pretty good question because I, I, the way I view training frequency is just another lever to alter training volume um, for the most part. So I think when you start getting into like really high number of sets per day per, for a given movement pattern or a given muscle group, at that that's when training frequency becomes much more important. Like if you're doing, you know, over 10 to 15 sets for a given muscle group or movement pattern, I think that it starts becoming better to split that up into multiple days. But I don't think that there's a difference if you split up, you know, uh, if you had somebody do five sets of five on squat, splitting it up into one set of five over five days, I don't think that's any better. Uh, I think it's about the same. And I think there's the, the variation you get in individuals from their response to training probably outweighs the difference in outcomes you would get from altering frequency like that. Um, but the heart of this question, which I actually think is interesting, is that is there a reason we should keep people like below a certain level of training volume or training frequency or anything like that because they just because they can progress on less? And my answer to that is I, no, not really, provided that they are like or can tolerate the higher training volume because I think. Overall, that's how you generate more stimulus and thus more fitness adaptations by doing more. If you can't tolerate it, though, you've gone too far. So, so I think you know very carefully weighing the potential fatigue that you're generating um, with what you can currently tolerate kind of should guide how much uh, volume you can you know handle, which you know should should guide how much frequency you can handle. Um, but I don't think you should artificially just cap people because just because they are responding in that same breath. However, if you're crushing a template, don't change it. Like you're, you're, you're in training Nirvana right now. Everything's going well. All your numbers are going up. Don't mess with it. But if it's when it stops working, not if, but when it stops working, then you can play with stuff. And I think that in general, um, you know, adding volume over time because there is this dose-dependent relationship between training volume and strength and hypertrophy and cardiorespiratory fitness and, other, and health-related outcomes. Yeah, you'd want to push that up. And I'd want to see you ideally be doing the most that you can uh, based on your current tolerance, uh, provided you have those training resources. If you can't, if you don't have those resources, well, this conversation isn't for you. Yeah, I think that to the extent that you care about your performance outcomes, um, uh, like getting as strong as you can over the course of your training career, um, doing as people don't get to very high levels of performance by doing as little as possible. I think that's pretty, uh, I feel fairly confident in saying that <laughs> the majority of people who, you know, get to national level or international level 
uh, uh, kind of levels of performance. They don't get there by saying, oh, I just did as little as I possibly could uh, uh, to make any amount of progress. Yeah. Uh, right. That's that's just not how this works. And and if you talk to a lot of people who have gotten to that level, particularly who got to that level before kind of the more modern like internet information uh, uh era of, of training where there's tons of uh, training info out there and, and different people putting out information. Lots of people were just like, yeah, I was just like a college bro. I was doing a five day a week body part split, fell in love with training. And then I wanted to keep going. And then I found powerlifting and I got super strong from there after they built this like big base of muscle mass, this big base of, uh, uh, you know, uh, conditioning and, and tolerance for training volume, things like that. And so um, versus people who say, yeah, I started out, you know, with one day a week, doing one set because, Hey, I was making, you know, progress. And then once that stopped working, I added a second set once a week and, you know, I've, I've just titrated my, my training up as little as possible to do the minimum possible dose uh, for, for decades. And here I am like at worlds, like that doesn't happen. So, um, yeah, I don't have a problem with people, you know, training more if they want to train more, if they can tolerate it and, and think, and they're, you know, uh, making uh, clear progress in the direction that they want. Do you think that if you trained more, you would get stronger. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. I like to, th I like to think so anyway. There's also All right. Last where I'm like, nah, <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. All right. Last question before we wrap this up. When is it appropriate to go off program? You're an adult. <laughs> you, can <do> it. <laughs> you can do it whenever you want. It's all training. It doesn't really matter that much. I mean, I mean, I think that if to the extent that you're placing a high level of value, on a particular performance at a particular time, like you're training towards a meet, then it would be not advisable to go off program, you know, with any degree of regularity, especially closer to a meet, because you've already decided that the meet day performance is important. If you're not training in that fashion, then literally whenever you want, like that's what I did in Virginia. I was, <laughs> it was like, oh, these, 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 uh, these weights are moving insanely fast and this happens a cup like a couple times a year. So let me just go ahead and do this thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the, this question for a real answer probably de depends on what are the actual goals and, and what's the context for the individual. So if the goals are hitting PRs full stop, not necessarily in a meet, uh, but just, you know, in general, I want to PR my squat, my bench press, my deadlift or whatever lifts you, you know, you're prioritizing then on days where you are getting a signal that you could PR, you you should go off program, quote unquote, to like realize that. Um, understanding that you know you should probably be careful with how often you're doing that. Um, I would actually though make the argument that if that is the goal for an individual, that maybe that needs to be baked in to the program. Like like hey, if your last warm up before your top single at eight feels like an RP five or less maybe you go for, for a PR, you know, maybe that's baked in. I, I don't really program like that, but I, but I do think that people, you know, that's kind of how we do it. Uh, if we don't have a meet coming up and, you know, if something feels just stupid fast, you're like, yeah, uh, I, I have clients who'll send me a video and they're like, can I? <laughs> yeah, like, right. Yeah, it's like, of course you, yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, being relatively conservative as far as how you're rating stuff and, and just being honest, that'll help you from like overusing that, um, but I think, you know, the, the more and more your training has a firm end date, uh, or, or goal date, like a meet or competition or something like that, I think probably the less, uh, off program, uh, deviations you should be taking. 
All right, that's a wrap on episode 115, our fourth programming podcast episode. Again, the first three episodes are linked in the description below. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Again, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by Dr. Austin Baraki. Hey, do us a favor, wherever you're listening to this podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, helps spread the word about Barbell Medicine so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuanced information in health and fitness. Don't forget to join us here every Monday for the latest podcast. Check us out on YouTube by searching Barbell Medicine. Every Tuesday, we have a new video. Every Wednesday, I, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, will be live on Instagram. You can head to my account, Jordan underscore Barbell Medicine. Check me out there for a live Q&A. And every Friday, we post a new article over on the website, barbellmedicine.com. So stay tuned and thanks for tuning in. See you next week. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.